Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to Sully Baseball Daily, the podcast we talk about baseball 365 days a year, unless it's a leap year, and then we're going to do another one. I've been doing this every single day since October 24th, 2012, and I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this Sully Baseball Studio in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Oakland A's manager, Bob Melvin, and just down the 101 from AT&T Park, the home of the San Francisco Giants. You know, sometimes we cling to the memories of our childhood. Sometimes we get too precious about things. Sometimes we exaggerate the love that we have for something or the importance of it. Uh, For years, I always kind of rolled my eyes at baby boomers when I saw how they would romanticize the movie, really the music, mainly the music and the television, and the baseball that they watched. The movies to a degree, but music, television, and baseball were all given like this, this put on a pedal so that you can't, you can't even compare anything now to what a baby boomer watched in terms of TV. It was the greatest baseball. They saw Willie Mays. They saw Mickey Mantle. They saw Sandy Koufax. They saw baseball at its peak. They saw baseball when the rivalries meant the most. They were baseball when their players were at their toughest. Baseball when everything was perfect. And the TV shows, oh, the Lucy and the Honeymooners, and those are the greatest shows of all time. And they don't even get you started on the music. You can't even burp. Anything musical that, that has come out since a baby boomer was in their prime without people rolling their eyes. If it's, you know, if it's not the Beatles, if it's not the Rolling Stones, if it's not the Beach Boys, it's not Motown, it's not the Supremes, it's not uh, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, it's not the Who, it, they, they didn't play it at Woodstock. Then what the hell good was it? You know, we have to, you have to, the reason like the Rolling Stones are going to tour forever until they all drop dead. And and I'm convinced for years after that moment because, well, the people will come out and see them. Most of them are now baby boomers. Mick Jagger is what? A great-grandfather at this point and a new father, which is weird. When your great-great-uncle is younger than you, that's strange. I'll be the first to admit that that's strange. But there is a certain preciousness. I remember trying to talk to someone about a year that Pedro Martinez had in, I believe I was talking about either 99 or 2000, where he put up unbelievable, it was 2000. His numbers that Pedro Martinez put up in 2000 were, 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 were almost superhuman. That they were, I'm going to go to baseballreference.com, the single greatest website in the history of the planet Earth. And Pedro... And let me go over his numbers. Just go over, I'm just going to go over his traditional numbers. I mean, his advanced stats were through the roof. You know, he has 18 and 6 record, fine. Uh, four shutouts. He threw to a 1.74 ERA. He struck out 284 batters in 217 innings. He walked only 32. And this is coming after a year where he struck out 313 batters in 213 innings with only walking 36. 
He had the he led the league in virtually every category in each of those years. And I said to someone, I put those two years, 1999 and 2000, that Pedro Martinez had against any season in baseball. And the run that he had between 1997 and 2000, which included three Cy Young Awards, a year where he threw 13 complete games in Montreal, was superhuman uh, two 300 strikeout seasons, you know, 215 to 240 innings a year, microscopic earned run average. And I put that up to any season that any pitcher has ever had in history, including the great run that Sandy Koufax went on. And the reason I say that is that if you put Koufax's numbers next to Pedro's numbers, um, yeah, you may see that Koufax eclipses him on certain stats and things like that. But Pedro was pitching at the peak of the steroid era, and an era where hitting 50 home runs was mundane, where the ballparks were smaller, where you weren't allowed to pitch inside, where the batters were wearing armor, that the ballpark's walls were shorter, that there was a designated hitter, that all the things, that the mound was lower, they no longer called the high strike. Every single element that went against Pedro that were advantages that Sandy Koufax had, higher mound, wider strike zone, ability to throw inside, no designated hitter, bigger ballparks, Koufax had all of those advantages. Pedro was playing an era where the shortstop was hitting opposite field home runs and hitting 20 of them a year. And Sandy was pitching an era where you knew there were two automatic outs in every lineup. And 30 home runs put you in an elite category. Pedro was pitching an era where 30 home runs meant you were a platoon player. And he put up those kind of numbers. And I, and I made that pitch. I said, that's a four or five year stretch for Pedro. Put up numbers where he would have fit right in with the Drysdales and the uh, Marischels and the, uh, you know, the Tom Seavers and all the big stars of the 60s. And he did it in a juiced era and all this other stuff. And the reaction that I got for the person I said this to, who was a baby boomer, was I had said something sacrilegious. He said, don't even get, the quote is, don't even give me that. Pedro Martinez, even mentioning him in the same breath as Sandy Koufax, is an insult. I thought, wait, wait, what? What? I just demonstrated, statistically and era-wise, that not only is it not an insult, it's, it's, it's factually accurate. Yeah, I'm not even stretching it out for the next bunch of years where he led, still led the league in strikeouts and earned run average. But I said, really? And I realized much later that this comes from a sense of that is insulting that person's childhood. That is insulting who you looked up to, to say, are you going to cheapen the person that I admired at a young age, that I came to, uh, came of age looking up to, and that I looked at this person is the elite of the elites. 
and how dare you bring them down compared to this person that I could have just watched on ESPN on a normal day. And I realized that I'm a Gen Xer. I was born in 1972. I came of age in the late 70s and really consider myself a child of the 80s. And we're starting to see that my generation is probably as bad as baby boomers in terms of being precious about what they grew up with and not wanting to hear, I don't want to hear anything bad about this, that, or the other thing. And we're going to keep dragging out the people that we loved growing up until even when they're old and way beyond their prime. Now for Gen Xers, we don't necessarily do that with our music acts. We don't do that dragging them out for in perpetuity. We do that with our movie stars. Stop and think about for a second. What we all, we went to see The Force Awakens where we dragged Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill out of retirement. And that same year, we dragged Sylvester Stallone out of retirement to do yet another Rocky film when he's way too old to be doing anything Rocky related at this point. You know, that we're dragging out, that we'll, we'll bring out Jurassic Park again. We'll bring out Independence Day again. We'll bring out Mad Max again. And if it deviates anything from our childhood memories, oh, wait a minute, you're doing Ghostbusters, but they're with women. No, 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 no. That, that's slightly different than my memory. You know, if you go back, and they're all films that we love, but you know what? We don't really need a Tron sequel, do we? Oh, we got one, okay. We're very precious about things because we can't let go. We don't want to hear that someone else's childhood is as cool as yours. And one thing that hit me today, I was at a bookstore. I still go to those. I still like going to bookstores. And I went to one, there was one up the street in Redwood City, and everything is up to date in Redwood City. And my kids were sitting, uh, you know, they picked a couple of Star Wars books up, and my kids like the Clone Wars, they like the prequels. And I caught myself going like, what do you mean you like the prequels, Empire's better than, wait a minute, Sullivan, 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 this is their childhood. This is the movies that they like. Let them enjoy it. Don't shove what you love down their throat. Don't be the person who says, let me tell you something, this music today is not, there's nothing against Country Joe and the Fish or the Strawberry Alarm Clock. Now, that was music. No, no, no. Let my kids like what they like. Don't be that person. And so I, I went to the sports book section, and I saw an example of my generation not being able to let go of something in the sports section. I'm in Northern California. I am a mere, let's say, 35-minute drive from AT&T Park. And I'm in a bookstore where I can pull no fewer than three books about the 1986 Mets that are just sitting there in a bookstore near San Francisco. I want, if I wanted to read a book by Ron Darling, if I wanted to read a book by Lenny Dykstra, by the way, if you see me saying, do you know what, I'd like to read a book by Lenny Dykstra, do me a favor, just lobotomize me right there. 
Just right then and there, right in the book section. Hold me down, get a saw, lobotomize me at that moment. If he said, you know what, I'm going to read this book by Lenny Dykstra, just stop and said, how many literary classics have you read? Have you read, uh, just, have you read Truman by Mac David McAuliffe? Have you read uh, the, the, the Power Broker by Robert Caro? There are other books out there for you to read before you pick up a tome from Leonard Dykstra. Ah, I'm going to get the cliff notes for Lenny Dykstra's book. I, I really had to stop, and I'm here on the, uh, the illustrious, I'm on what's called the internet right now. It's this new thing that happened when I was in college. They, they invented something called the internets. And I typed in to the Google, I went to the Google, and I typed in books about the 1986 Mets. Jeff Perlman's The Good Guys won, Matt Silverman's One Year Dynasty, Eric Sherman's Kings of Queens, Michael Gary, The Game of My Life, Mookie Wilson's book, Mookie, a fine, fine book, um, uh, the, the Ron Darling book, the Daniel Erickson book, The 86 Mets Memories, uh, Leslie ha uh, Hafey's The 1986 Mets, There Was More Than Game Six, uh, there was uh, Faith and Fear and Flushing by Greg W. Prince. Okay, that wasn't, ex wasn't uh, exactly about that. But, oh, there's Har Howard Berman's The Seasons of Ghosts, The 86 Mets. I mean, this is, this is a, a Dream Season by Gary Carter. Michael Soles, One Strike Away. Um, Amazing by Fred McMain. Yes. The Daily News 86 season scrapbook, uh, uh, Turning Two. Uh, okay, that wasn't completely the greatest uh, greatest game ever played by Jerry Eisenberg. I mean, this is this is probably an incomplete list. I mean, was the were there this many books written about Lexington and Concord? My God, is there, are there this many biographies written about Benjamin Franklin? Or Mahatma Gandhi? Or Harriet Tubman? I mean, look it. This is not coming from a bitter Red Sox fan because I, I'm, I'm going to guarantee you, if I type in, by the time it all comes, all comes to fruition, the 2004 Boston Red Sox are going to be, I don't know, slightly covered. But I was thinking, this is an eight, a 1980s phenomenon. This is the one New York championship of the 1980s, the one baseball championship of the 1980s in New York were the Mets of 1986. Now stop and think about that for a second. Because you had, in the decades, whether it was the John McGraw Giants, the Babe Ruth or the Lou Gehrig or the DiMaggio or the Casey Stengel or the Mickey Mantle era Yankees, or, you know, you had, you know, a, a smattering of Giants championships here, the one Brooklyn championship in 55. Uh, you had the, both the Yankees and Mets won championships in the 1960s. You had the Bronx Zoo Yankees winning in the 1970s. The 90s and the 2000s had a bunch of Yankee titles as well. You had one 
in the 80s. One in the era of exploding cable television, of the beginning of super stations, of the beginning of the VCR culture, the beginning of the MTV culture, the beginning of that sort of rise of New York post-70s, post-Ford uh, to City Drop Dead when New York began its great rebound, the bonfire of the vanity young Donald Trump divorcing Ivana era of New York. The, you know, it's the, the, the ending of the whole CBGBs and disco era and the beginning of the New York of excess, the New York of Gordon Gecko, the great rebound of the city of which New York also was, you know, tremendously influenced in, in pop culture as well. The rise of hip hop, all these different things happened in the 80s. And for people like me, who grew up in the 80s, it was, it was a time where I, I find myself doing some of the same things that I made fun of those baby boomers of doing, of clinging on to my favorite players, whether, you know, and certainly when you have me talk about basketball, you know, I grew up with Bird versus Magic Johnson. And I almost, you know, bristle when I think, oh, my God, how could anyone compare any rivalry today to that? And I said, well, because uh, that was the rivalry I grew up with. And so I'm seeing that same sort of preciousness about this championship that was won by the Mets. Here's something that we all have to come to grips with to a degree. We all have to understand that this is true in baseball because... Some people try to deny it, and some people try to overemphasize it, but we have to sometimes agree that there are some facts that we have to deal with. There will always be a New York bias in baseball. There will, there will always will be that. There will always be a bias towards raising a New York team up and celebrating when the New York team loses. But you will see the spikes in popularity in baseball tend to coincide with a rise in popularity of baseball in New York. We see it in television ratings. We see it in interest in baseball. We see it interest in the stars of baseball. I mean, you may not like it. They may not like to hear that when they're here in the Bay Area, especially when the Giants have, are putting together such an amazing run of multiple championships with homegrown players incredibly likable. You may not like to hear that when you're from Boston. And the, the, the Yankees and the, the, the Mets are your rivals in championships. But it's a fact. We see it. We see whenever there's a rise in the popularity of the game, it coincides with a rise of the popularity of a New York team. And when you think about like the 50s as being a golden age for baseball, sure, if you lived in New York... It sucked if you were in Philadelphia, or in Pittsburgh, or in St. Louis, or in Chicago, or in Washington, or in Boston. Because it, it was Yankees winning it every year, or playing the Dodgers, or playing the Giants, and every once in a while, a Phillies, or a Milwaukee Braves, or a Chicago White Sox, or an Indians might sneak in. But almost every year, it was, it was all in New York. So it seemed like the glory times. 
And we talked about, like, oh, when, when Jeter retired, it was, like, what, we're running for the hills. People were saying, what are baseball going to do when he's gone? I don't know, embrace this incredible league filled with players under the age of 25. And then you have an era, the 80s, where there wasn't a super team. There wasn't a dynasty. Only one team won multiple championships in the 1980s, and that was the L.A. Dodgers, and those two teams that won were really, really different. So you have that one team in the middle of the 80s, that one team that won, filled with charismatic players, filled with complicated players, filled with eccentric players, who were the Mets. And for my generation... People are going to romanticize that team to death, that they had character, that they had controversial people, that they had players who were doing drugs, that they embodied everything of the 1980s in New York, the excess, the money, the sex, the drugs, the celebrity, the television exposure, the being part of this 24-7 news cycle that really started to begin in the 80s, the tabloid culture of the 80s. And for people of my age, they are going to romanticize it to death, to absolute death. We are going to hear about Darling and Strawberry and Gooden and Hernandez until the people of the next generation just throw their head back and go, oh, shut up already. That's one reason I really found myself wanting the Mets to win last year's World Series. Because if no other reason, it would just give people a chance to shut up about 1986. And yes, I know, I'm a Red Sox fan who can't shut up about 2004. I'm the first to admit I'm acting a smidge hypocritical here. But maybe my point is to be a Gen Xer telling my fellow Gen X people, hey, what if we take our foot off the throttle? What if we say, yeah, that was a lot of fun, but let's not just constantly live and dwell in the past. I said over and over, baseball is great because it lives in the past and the present and the future simultaneously. But you can't have it be too much of one or the other. It has to be the three. We have had enough books written about the Mets of 1986. We're done. It's kind of like when I saw Ron Howard was making a documentary about the Beatles and touring days. I said, really? What aspect of the Beatles' life do we not have 28 books written about? Or another 58-part documentary on the subject? We're done. We're done. Baby Boomers, you had your music. There's some great music in that. We're done talking about it. Gen Xers, deal with the fact that we all like Star Wars, we all like Ghostbusters, we all like Indiana Jones. Maybe it's time we let everyone hang up their hats, their lightsabers, and their proton packs and go do something new. And for baseball fans my age, yes, we were denied the great dynasty when we were growing up of this team or the other. But do you know what? Let's write about other things. And if you find yourself saying, yeah, i got to add to my uh, New York Mets library collection, ask yourself, is there a great classic book that I've never read? 
maybe read it instead of cracking open whatever Ron Darling has to say. Go to sullybaseball.com. Go to MLBreports.com to see the up-to-date listings of who owns baseball. You can go to Facebook, iTunes, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram, I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. This has been a wagging a finger at my generation episode of the Sully Baseball Daily Podcast. And I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully.